what they found out is that baby already was so intelligent and taking care of itself that it learned that when the mom went to reach for a cigarette, it went and got, you know, clogged up over the um, place where it would receive the oxygen so that it would receive less smoke. Like it was that intuitive. And so then once the baby's born, you know, the thing is, is that, you know, we want to think that they're like a blank slate, but in that first year, their brain doubles. Um, Now, what it's mainly going towards is their motor skills and, you know, coordination development and things like that, but they're still taking all their environment in. They're not a blank slate at all. Hey, welcome back to Normalize the Conversation. Today, I'm here with Robin Reiser, um, licensed clinical social worker with 38 years of experience specializing in trauma and attachment disruptions in children and adults. Robin, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you really? How am I really? I'm, I'm really good. I really enjoyed talking with you. So yeah, I'm, I'm doing good. How oh, you? you're so sweet. I'm doing okay. It's been a tough couple of days. I get those periods where I'm just so overwhelmed and yeah. exhausted and burnt out. So I've been going through that a bit, but this has definitely given me something to look forward to. So I'm really happy about that. So today we're going to talk about attachment disruption. So first, let's talk about the importance of the connection between a parent and a child. Okay. And let me start with this is I always want to clarify that if anybody's um, feeling a huge amount of guilt or shame or anything like that from what I'm sharing, like it's, it's, it's the opposite of that. It's to give you relief because, you know, whatever has happened, if you recognize it and you're aware of it, then you can change it. That's the hope. So it's, I don't want anybody going to self-contempt like, oh, I can't believe I didn't know that. And I did this and I look back and blah, 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 because there's always help in the present. So that's the first thing I want to say. Um, but, you know, and I mean, I think when you think about it and even in beginning in the womb, it's the baby starting to attach because for nine months, it's getting the same touch, the same smells. It's developing the diet based on what the mom's eating everything's very, very familiar. In fact, there's a video um, that I've seen where they, they put a camera inside of a, a woman while she was pregnant. Oh, wow. And this woman was a smoker and they were trying to show the effects that smoking has on, on babies. That was their point. What ended up happening is they got a lot more. What they found out is that baby already was so intelligent and taking care of itself that it learned that when the mom went to reach for a cigarette it went and got you know clogged up over the um place where it would receive the oxygen so that it would receive less smoke like it was that intuitive and so then once the baby's born you know the thing is is that you know we want to think that they're like a blank slate but in that first year their brain doubles um Now, what it's mainly going towards is their motor skills and, you know, coordination development and things like that, but they're still taking all their environment in. They're not a blank slate at all. And so a lot of times, 
you know, and, and it can get really confusing because, you know, on the one hand, you don't like so tune in into your baby that you're not helping it progress its milestones. But at the same time, there's a, a non-attachment that can happen that causes the baby to start going into uh, self-protection care. And that can happen one of two ways. The baby can just look all of a sudden like they don't have any needs because they've shut down. And we call that a lot of times, oh, look, what a good baby they're being. They've learned to, you know, not need anybody or need anything, you know. I mean, there's even, you know, certain books that say, put them on your schedule. Don't go on their schedule because then you're spoiling them. I'm, trust me, you can't spoil a baby in the first year. It's not, you can't. So, you know, you can make it more difficult for them to learn to get to sleep at night on their own. You know, if you only hold them the whole time, you know, that kind of a thing, but you want to bridge them. But the point is, is that there's a lot going on, you know, is the whole main thing. And so then the first three years, I think it's like 80% is what you know. And then, um, but see, after that first, well, during that first year, but up until the third year, what's also happening is by that same pattern, as much as possible, being met in them to meet their needs in that cycle. Now, if they get fed and their diapers changed and held and that kind of thing, that creates a cycle that makes them open their heart and they trust more and more because they're secure. A baby that can't open their, their heart, if they don't become the good baby, they become the rage baby. <laughs> like they will let you know and, and the mom will be like, I'm trying everything. I don't know what's wrong. I don't get it. You know, and they really don't. They don't know because a lot of adults haven't been very bonded with well by their own parents. So, you know, that's my whole thing again, is how can you know what you don't know? Um, so that's why I just feel like, you know, we really need to get it out there. Um, just how important it is, you know, to tune into your baby and everything your baby's picking up during those first three years by five years old, it's 90% of what they know. Wow. Those are incredible statistics. And I love that example that you brought up about how the baby knew how to take care of itself inside the womb. Mm -hmm. And we don't realize that they're actually very intelligent. And the way that we connect with them during those first few years, like you said, is so important because we're teaching them how to continue to take care of themselves. And if we're making them adjust completely to our schedule, they're never able to create their own schedule. Mm -hmm. And these are things that no one really talks about. And it's just so important that we realize how deep that connection is and the effects that it has. So then there's this idea of attachment disruption. So what does it mean when a child's attachment to a parent is disrupted? Well, you can see where it would be even more vulnerable during those first, you know, three to five years for there to be like a long separation from a parent. Um, and so if it's because the parents maybe, um, you know, a, a drug addict or, you know, an alcoholic and just isn't tuning into the, the child or doesn't know how, um, then the, the child will start developing symptoms from that. Um, they'll, from them shutting down and not caring, uh, then they'll eventually need like um, some help and even learning right from wrong. I mean, that that's what it comes down to because the, the consciousness is also forming, like as I'm connecting and attaching to my caregiver, 
then I'm picking up on how they see and view and, and all their emotions and how they feel life. And so imagine if your mom's very, very anxious and having a lot of anxiety or depression, um, you know, she can't help it, you know, but she's also got a brand new baby right there. So the baby is being affected. But then what usually shows up by the time they're a little bit older is they just will go indiscriminately for affection to anybody because they do have the need for touch but they found a safe way to get it, not with anybody that they really know. So it's not intimacy, but they're getting touch. I mean, they did a thing in, in Russia. This is like a thing in psychology 101. They used to show a lot like a film where they put, I don't even know how they got away with doing this in the fifties, but they had babies that they just didn't even touch or hold and they died. They fed them and it did everything else. The babies died just from not being held and touched. Oh my goodness. Yeah. That's what we're talking about. That is so incredible. The effects of a disruption in a connection and the lack of a connection. Mm. And we don't realize that what we do and how we act and how we feel and how we behave affects a child. And we think that children are so resilient. And I remember the first time we connected, what you said to me was, if children were so resilient, why are so many adults in therapy? And that is so incredibly important that we realize children aren't as resilient as we think they are. They need that connection with us. They depend on us. And we have to show up in a way that makes them feel safe and makes them feel comfortable. But let's dive a little deeper into disruption. What are some examples of disruption what qualifies as disruption? Because I think a lot of people may feel, well, how do I know if I have a disruption in my connection and attachment with my child? So what is that kind of boundary? Well, usually it starts showing up in your relationships. You know, it's, um, you know, a lot of times, you know, we'll think that we really want someone that's going to open their heart to us and then we can open our heart to them. But if there's like any kind of a attachment stuff, and again, I want to say it's not black or white. It's on a continuum. I think to some degree, we're all have attachment issues. You know what I mean? Like nobody's ever going to be a perfect parent or pour everything into you secure wise that, that you need it, you know? So to that degree, that's going to be there. But I think that when, um, you, when you, when you start being, start avoiding relationships, you know, that's like an anxiety avoidant kind of, a um, uh, disruption and attachment and then um then there's the person that just acts like they just don't even care they don't need relationship at all and then there's the person that's very very clingy once they get into a relationship because they're not secure their security is constantly trying to get that other person's approval so you can see you know there's a lot of different ways in in adulthood that it shows up it is so important to realize that Again, how we treat our children, how we are raised, how we grow up, what we learn, what we don't learn comes out as adults and it affects us. So being able to provide that support that children need is so important. So when it comes to disruption, what um, causes an attachment disruption? Well, I mean, you know, I was thinking about it in terms of with um, children, because that's mainly a lot of what I dealt with in the beginning, because 
now the children are adults. So they are experiencing disruption as adults. And a lot of times it's, you know, again, that's on a continuum because to the degree that you were already didn't have like a really secure foundation in your own family, then to that degree, you know, it, it doesn't have to necessarily be in a negative way. It can just be that because you, in a, in a good way, you're looking out for yourself and you find someone that looks safe and familiar and kind. Maybe they're a family member, maybe they're not, but you just let your heart open up and you attach deeply, you know, to them. And then that's as an adult. And so then when you, when you experience that loss, it's more than just, you know, again, I'm not minimizing grief, but it's more than just a person that's lost someone that they love who's died. You've also lost what feels like a piece of yourself because you were so close and attached to that person. So if I feel like that as an adult, you know, um, then it, then from there, it depends on what you do with it. Like, then do you, because you, you know, once you're like working through the emotions, are you like closing down more or are you getting to a place where you're realizing the significance of that person and realizing there's nothing wrong with me for feeling the things that I'm feeling as deeply as I'm feeling them. That's not a disorder. That's not something like a label that's wrong with you. That's called having a normal heart and soul. Yeah. I'm really happy that you brought that up because I can totally relate to that. When I lost my grandfather, he was my best friend in the entire world. He was the guy I FaceTimed every morning for coffee, every day after class to tell him about school, what I was learning every night for dinner. Even if he was out with friends, he would still make sure to FaceTime or answer and show me what he was eating and who he was with. So he was my lifeline in many ways. When I decided I was going to be a vegetarian, Uh He decided to stay up all night cooking every vegetable he could. And he would do it almost every day because he wanted to make sure I had enough food since I wasn't going to be having that same protein. And he didn't even believe in the idea of not eating meat, but he wanted to make sure that I still had something to eat. So this guy was everything and more to me. And when I lost him, that was my lifeline. I didn't know how to live. I had no idea what to do. I didn't know how to start my day. I didn't know how to end my day. I felt so lost. So grieving had this whole extra level to it. And I didn't understand how significant that was and how significant that pain was or how to cope with it. So I ended up attempting suicide, hospitalized in a psych ward, and I still didn't have those coping tools because these aren't conversations we have. I didn't even realize it was this attachment disruption. And that's something that actually happens and happens frequently. So for someone who goes through that, what advice do you have for learning how to cope? Well, I would say the first thing is, is that, you know, trust your, your gut, because when you're in that situation, you know how you're feeling and you know that it's real. And so, and, and also I would say, don't, don't let anybody call it a a disorder or, you know, say that you have something psychologically wrong with you. Um, You're deeply sad. That's not something wrong with you, you know, and it's like your heart and your soul was connected to your grandfather. That was like your umbilical cord. So to all of a sudden have that severely cut and not there, 
was your lifeline, like you're saying. So why wouldn't you, you know, go the direction that you went, you know, I mean, I'm, 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 I'm so glad you're here, obviously, but it's like, you know, it, it didn't have to go that way, but it did. And I think that the resources that maybe you had received from him, I don't know, maybe, you know, you can tell me if, if those kicked in to some degree eventually because and started giving you some kind of a strength um, because you're still in relationship with him. You're still attached. Yeah, you know, in the beginning, I felt so lost and like, I didn't know who I was anymore. And because he was that a really important piece of me. But as I started to cope, and it took probably about a year before I got to that point of learning how to cope, where I saw Mm. how much that he had taught me and how much of that was inside me. But no one, again, had these conversations or taught me to look within myself Mm. and to see that I was still okay. I was still able to stand on my own two feet. And that's why I love that you want to bring attention to this, that you want to create these conversations surrounding attachment disruption, because it is so common in life. We are going to lose important people. We may lose parents, friends, grandparents, aunts, uncles, cousins, siblings. We're going to experience some type of loss. And a lot of times it can be someone that is so, so, so close to you that you have that attachment that feels like a lifeline. Mm -hmm. And like you said, that doesn't mean something's wrong with you when you're grieving. Doesn't mean that something psychologically is wrong with you and that you're crazy because you are grieving so deeply and you were so deeply hurt. It's normal. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So and, you know, I think we just want to, I mean, I think a lot of times in, in the mental health uh, industry or whatever you want to call it, it's like with, you know, psychiatrists, psychologists, and especially in hospital settings, everything's so medical oriented that they almost leave you out of the equation to some degree because they're following this list of disorders and go, oh, does she meet this one? Does she meet this one? You know? That started in 1952. I think at the time there might've been like, I don't know, 50 disorders that these men sat down and just decided to write this DSM book that all everybody follows today, you know? Now it's got 267 disorders in it. So instead of us realizing that we're just changing as a culture, so people, their problems are changing emotionally that's not necessarily something for me to go, oh, now I got to go put this in the DSM because this could happen to somebody. You know, it's like, we're just human beings, you know? And it's like, I do believe there's a place for medication. I really do believe that. But I also think on the other hand, it's just so easy to to use that, to just start putting people. And, you know, I I might, I might, I'm not might, I do have like a problem with that because when I was uh, in my late teens, uh, they just really didn't know what to do with me. And counseling wasn't like a big thing at all back then. So, you know, I could totally understand that, but, um, you know, it was like, it was like when I would go to a psychiatrist, they would give me a medication. And if I said that that wasn't helping, they did, they would just add more medicine until 
eventually the medication they were giving me was creating amnesic episodes in me where I was losing portions of time. So then I'd go to my therapist and my therapist would say, oh, well, then maybe you have multiple personality disorder. I mean, I'm like, what? Are you kidding? (laughs) No, no. It's like, and in a way, it's kind of good that they went that extreme because if it was something less, I might have said, yeah, that's me. I probably do need this. And think about how many people that happens to all the time. So I would say whenever you're feeling an attachment disruption as an adult, there's so much stuff online now. But if you look at it through, um, you know, just how they want to define the disorder you know they've really minimized and acting and they're and they're saying now as i read today that um it's it it doesn't happen very often when it's really the opposite it's growing yeah you know i mean there's more and more more kids that are now adults that have attachment disorders and that's why it's sad they can't connect they can't have relationship with people which is good that you could pull from the resources inside yourself but then you still needed a support system, you know, other people that nobody can ever take the place of your grandfather, but you know, you, but you still need people that are just going to support you with love and, and maybe medication, maybe. But the point is, is that I don't look at it just through medical vision. Um, In fact, I think it's like 10% of the, DSM is written by the people that actually do therapy. 50% of it's psychologists and some psychologists do do therapy, but a lot of times their main thing is testing. The largest amount is written by psychiatrists. Their whole thing is medication. So they're, you know what I mean? It's like, so that's the automatic thing to go to. And even with small children and, um, you know, and they, they don't even need it, but if you're told by a doctor and you're not in this field and you don't know a lot that your kid has a disruption and they need medication and all that, like you're just going to do whatever it is they say to do because you, yeah. you want to help your child. Um, exactly. Yeah. And you brought up such a fascinating point, how we are so quick to go straight to a disorder and to medication. And yes, mental illness exists and one in five live with mental illness. But there's also a distinction between symptoms and an actual disorder and learning that if something happens like a huge trauma or attachment disruption, that you may experience symptoms. Mm -hmm. That does not mean you have a mental illness or disorder. Yet it can turn into one without the proper coping mechanisms, support resources. You may need medication for a short term or a long term. That's between you and your doctor and the right treatment plan for you. But it's important to realize that a symptom is not a disorder. And we need to make sure that we're paying attention to that because we go so quick into diagnosis, especially with children. Like you said, when you're experiencing an attachment disruption, you may have, um, you may be acting out in school, at home. It's hard to sit still in school in general. Mm-hmm. And you may get diagnosed with ADHD and put on a stimulant right away. Mm-hmm. And it's something we need to be paying attention to. Right. Exactly. Exactly. 
because it's just amazing. You know, I can, I just remember what would happen in the beginning a lot is once a mom was able to not just stay in self-blame or, you know, saying, you know, staying stuck on, I'm a bad mom, you know, what she could get off of that and get into, okay, I'm so glad I see this. I want to correct this with my child. And one of the big key components is eye contact because these kids can maintain eye contact on their terms and affection with their caregiver on their terms. Like if they initiate the hug, but they're not real good at you initiating it because when you do to the degree that you can't trust, you get a control. So they try to control everything because that feels safer. And, um, you know, I just think that, that when a mom sees this and they're able to like, I mean, I'll even have like a, I don't know, like a five or six year old, you know, just even sit on their mom's lap like that. You know, they can't go back, but they can redo that eye contact like they're a baby and look at them and you can't breastfeed them, but caramels have the closest thing in it to a mom's breast milk. So they hold like a caramel sometimes and they're looking in their eyes. It's replicating what they missed. And it makes up for it. And this, it, it happens so fast too. That's the thing. And I had this little kid come walk in, in the room when I was said, okay, you can come on up now. And I was sitting with his mom and he comes in and he looks at me and he's beaming. And he said, guess what? He goes, my mom fell in love with me. That is so like, that's everything right there. That's everything. Yeah. I love that. And you brought up an important point again, that you can redevelop a connection after disruption. And that is so important. Just because a disruption happened doesn't mean you can't reconnect. You can reconnect with your child, with a loved one and rebuild that connection. So what are like three action items that we can take to reconnect with a child after a disrupted attachment? Um, I would say the eye contact is huge. In fact, I mean, there was a, a couple that I saw this morning and um, they, you know, as they're probably in their early thirties and they have three kids and they did not come from families with really, really secure attachments so even with them, when I'm asking them to look at each other's eyes more when they're talking to each other. And, um, you know, it's like there's things that we just, you know, don't even realize we're not doing. And so, you know, another thing, if you want to put a number on it, a lot of times I'll just tell parents, you know, just doesn't have to be like a big come sit with me hug. I mean, especially as your kid's older, like 12, 13, 14, just try to maybe, you know, anywhere from a half a dozen to a dozen times a day, touch them, just walk by them. You know, it doesn't have to just pat them, just say, Hey, that's it. I mean, that just does everything for them, you know? And it's, it's just amazing to see. Sometimes I think we think it's going to be so big in our mind, what we have to do, but really what we want is so basic and simple. We just want to be known and loved and seen. Exactly. We want to feel secure and loved. And like you said, eye contact and physical touch, that's an important part of a love, love language because it makes you feel seen and it makes you feel secured and safe. 
Robin, thank you so, so much for joining me today for this conversation. You are absolutely incredible. And thank you for wanting to bring such attention and conversations to attachment disruption. Thank you. I really appreciate it. And can I just give one resource that I would say for parents go online is um, Families by Design, Nancy Thomas. She's been doing this for like 50 years. She's taken kids in her home and gone through helping them. And then they return to the families, the ones that are really severe. So I would definitely recommend um, you look at that so that you don't walk away from this thinking something that's, you know, inaccurate. Um, But no, thank you so much for bringing attention to this subject. I really appreciate it. Of course. And thank you for sharing that resource. It's always helpful when someone has something tangible to take with them. So thank you.